if we're going to stave off the seemingly unmanageable effects of climate change, we first need to notice the strange way with which our interaction with this environment of ours has fundamentally changed. In other words, we need to notice our pets. Now, I don't know about you, but I struggle with environmental issues. I always feel less than. There's always somebody else who's doing something greener, somebody else who has a more eco-friendly car, who's bought more organic, more locally sourced clothing than me. You can nod your head and say amen if you felt that guilt. There we go. And yet we're all struggling with the same issues. And the same issue is whether or not we can notice. Now what's there to notice? I came upon this noticing in a rather backwards way. I was listening to a podcast, which is not a surprise to anyone who knows me very well. And I heard the live reading of a book called Wild Ones by John Muellum. Its subtitle is a sometimes dismaying, weirdly reassuring story about looking at people, looking at animals in America. Writer Muellum noticed the difference in our interaction with this environment and our relationship with pets when he first began to raise his child. This book begins, My daughter's world, like the world of most American four-year-olds, has overflowed with wild animals since it first came into focus. Lionesses, puffins, hippos, bison, sparrows, rabbits, narwhals, and wolves. They are plush and whittled, knitted, baddock, and bean-stuffed. Appliqued on onesies and embroidered into the ankles of her socks. I don't remember buying most of them. It feels as if they just appeared like some Carnival Cruise Lines-esque ark had docked outside our apartment and this wave of gaudy, grinning tourists came ashore. Before long, they were foraging in every page of every bedtime story, and my daughter was sleeping in polar bear pajamas under a butterfly mobile with a downy snow owl clutched to her chin. Her comb handle was a fish. Her toothbrush handle was a whale. And she cut her first tooth on a rubber giraffe, which as many of us in this room know was probably named Sophie. Sophie, that ubiquitous of long-necked creatures in our world. What has happened? How do we get to this place? Now, as Muellum accounts, we've shifted from a world in which we feared the birds and beasts to this new epic in history where we, at the new top of the food chain, put the creatures our descendants feared onto our children's pajamas. I think there are three events that define this transition, or at least illustrate it well from his book. Scene one. Thomas Jefferson, writing in his Notes on the State of Virginia, brags about how our animals in America were bigger and better than Europe's. This was in order to counteract the theory of American degeneracy, a very popular theory in Europe at the time that everything in America got smaller and dumber. This is, this is the truth. 
This was a big problem for Jefferson and other states people because European countries wouldn't lend money to the United States government because they so firmly believed that everything in America shrank and got worse, including the returns on their investment. So Jefferson writes and talks about these huge beasts, some with teeth about a foot tall. He was talking about the woolly mammoth who no one had seen yet in America, but they're sure way out in the West somewhere there's probably one of them hanging out. Scene two. William Temple Hornaday, in 1888, is appalled by the near extinction of the American buffalo, practically in two decades. At the time, he believes there may be 300 or less left in the whole earth. So he travels to Montana to shoot several dozen and to bring them back to his job as a taxidermist at the Smithsonian Institution. Stuffing them in the museum, he believed at the time, was the only way to make these species live on for his children's children. Later, Hornaday became a conservationist in a more modern sense of the term and actually helped the bison to revive. Scene three. The American president goes into the Mississippi wilderness in 1902 for a four-day hunting trip. And upon seeing a female black bear about half her normal size due to a drought, he refuses to shoot the bear or to let anybody else shoot the bear. Instead, he prescribes what he believes is the most humane option available to him at the moment. He asks his hunting guide to put the bear out of her misery with a knife. The Washington Post cartoonist Clifford Berryman leaves out that little detail, but his picture of the very first teddy bear, he happens to move the eyes of the bear forward, more like a human face, and he shortens the snout to look more like our nose. And because of this anthropocentric drawing, we all know about Roosevelt's teddy bear. And very few of us have heard about William Howard Taft's Billy Possum. The creators of that toy in the next presidency forgot to make the creature look human enough. And it crumbled even before the next Christmas. A sad reality for a toy. Now, the real miracle of the teddy bear is that before that time, people didn't buy animals for their children. But by 1910, most of America lived in cities. And secondhand stories and books like Jack London's White Fang popped up about this great American frontier that had already been wildly pulverized. And from that point forward, we've relied on zoos and books to tell us what it was like back in that world where we weren't on top of the food chain. As I said before, I believe the good news of the gospel for us today is that our animals can be our hope. Because if we notice them for what they are, and not necessarily what we make them to be, items of utilitarian joy, that we can remember 
who we are, where we've come from, and what our place is in this order of things. For hundreds of thousands of years, we saw other animals as either fear or food, predators or lunch, and there was a healthy ecosystem. We knew where we belonged, and the system kept us in balance. See footnote A, the Lion King and the Circle of Life. But when we start to notice the animals, we start to think about our relationship with them, we start to think about deeper things. We start to think about where these animals came from and their relatives. We start to think about the environment that they're a part of. We start to think about plants and fungus and soil, whether, whether or not it matters that the dunes disappear, whether it matters to watch one more polar bear dying on YouTube. People who do take notice are the answer, right? You know the conservationists and the environmentalists in your midst, the people that encourage you to notice, to take action, to support your local parks, to find a way to keep one more species alive, to find a way to make sure that this is not the century, as scientists predict, where over half of the world's species will go extinct. But in this era of the Anthropocene, this age of human domination, Christians thinking theologically should remember the calling bestowed on us in Eden to tend and nurture this creation. Dominion, not domination. Certainly the hardest part is remembering to control our propensity for self-promotion, to keep growing and growing as a species without thinking about the consequences. But I'm excited about pets and animals. I mean, you saw how excited our kids were up here, right? Something about that dog speaks to them in a spiritual way. And I know it's not just those kids, because you can look at the numbers. In America, the rates of pet ownership have jumped from 56% in 2012 to 65% of households in 2015 owning major pets. D.C., between the years 2012 and 2013, saw a doubling of requests for pet licenses. That's in the district, right? The traditional place of the single people have no time for pets. Something spiritual is feeding this drive. The same drives that are bringing the rise of backyard gardens or the soaring sales of the REIs and the outdoor adventure gear industry. It's signs that our modern ecosystem is missing something fundamentally central to our existence of children of God. We know it's a system that's sick and that we haven't been able to figure out how to cure the cancer. We know that things are out of balance. And in a theological light, We start to think about climate change and mass extinction 
as visible signs of that invisible sickness. So can we balance our place in this world? I believe we can. I chose this lectionary passage from the book of Acts, not because it says anything particular about animals, but because it's an Easter text. It propels us forward with hope. Peter comes to this home, to Tabitha, and the power of the resurrection, and exudes that life-giving force into her. She rises up. But the question for us 21st, Christian, 21st century Christians is not, did the resurrection happen, but does resurrection happen? Does resurrection happen today? And what I've read about the state of conservation in the world is that it's complicated, but it is happening. Take, for example, the Asiatic lion, which used to roam from Europe to China, and as the beginning of the 20th century was down to about 20 creatures. And thanks to a forward-thinking regional prince in India, those lions are now up to 500. And they often help out their Gujarati Indian farmers in their neighborhoods remove those pesky deer during the night so that they don't eat the farmers' crops. Strange is the new world in which we live with our other creatures. In China, they've reforested an area of the country as large as the state of California in order to prevent the encroachment of the desert on the Beijing. And it seems to be working. 350,000 bison, by the way, are living today. And in Brazil, they successfully created a new forest preserve the size of Belgium and brought back from near extinction the golden tamarind monkey. Now these are stories of good news, but there's a lot of other downright strange anecdotes as well. As we speak, whooping cranes are being taught new migration patterns with lightweight planes and gruff Harley-Davidson driving men wearing white suits. I kid you not. Copulation hats are being worn by scientists in order to encourage the multiplication of certain species. If you don't know what copulation is, turn to your neighbor and help explain what a copulation hat could possibly do. In California, a few volunteers pull weeds every single day in order to continue the life of the Langes Meadowmark butterfly in a very small patch of dune surrounded by multi-million dollar California homes. Conservation reliance in our relationship in this system is dependent on us noticing our new role in this world and by thinking theologically about it. Certainly the answers are not clear. But what is clear is we have to start thinking. We have to start praying. We have to start wondering with awe again why we have this spiritual connection to Sammy. 
and to our goldfish. Our role in this world will be extremely difficult and complicated. North Carolina Bishop Leonard Bullock tells the story of a retired clergyman who organized a Holy Land tour. One day, the group made a bus trip from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Along the way, the pastor told the group how they would see many sheep and shepherds and to think about how Jesus was the good shepherd and how shepherds always went in front of the sheep, leading them. He never went behind, beating or pushing or shoving them. Suddenly, the bus was stopped for a herd of sheep to pass. The pastor was surprised to see a man with a stick beating the sheep. He got off the bus and confronted the man. Look here, everything I've read and been telling the people on the bus says the shepherd leads the sheep with love. He doesn't come from behind beating and pushing. That's true, said the man. But I'm not a shepherd. I'm a butcher. (laughs) Our roles in this new epoch are indeed confusing. But our hope in the resurrection is not. Look at Peter and Tabitha, my friends. Recognize that this is just not a God business, but hear the good news of the resurrection. We, too, are in the new life business. And speaking about evolutionary theodicy and the extinction of creation, Christopher Southgate writes in his book, The Groaning of Creation, we shall fulfill our co-redeeming role, becoming partners with God in the healing of our little corner of the cosmos, when we reveal our true Christ-likeness by having our minds set on servanthood. We shall transcend ourselves not by the consummation of all our desires, but through re-educating them through wisdom so as to liberate the non-human creation from the travail of extinction. So resurrection people, go. Go from this place, co-creating this new world, knowing that the Christ who risked his own extinction is working with us to end climate change and to seek abundant life for all creatures of our God and King. Thanks be to God, and amen.